The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. As we continue our study on the journey, looking at uh, the life of Christ and the Gospel of Mark, and this morning we look at a message of entitled Warnings and Promises. Warnings and Promises. Mark chapter 4, this morning we'll begin at verse 21. Thank you, sir. And uh, we'll be going all the way down through verse 34. Different parables that Jesus spoke to his disciples. Beginning in verse 21, reading from the NIV this morning. He said to them, do you bring in a lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on its stand? For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed, and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. If anyone has ears to hear, let them hear. Consider carefully what you hear, he continued. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you and even more. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. He also said to them, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground night and day. Whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. Again he said to them, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like, or what parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants, with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable, but when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything to them. Father, as we look at these different parables, uh, we're grateful that the Savior was with the disciples to be able to explain their meaning. And we don't have Jesus here this morning, but Spirit of God, we have you in us. And you tell us that you are here to guide us into truth. And so I pray that you will guide us into truth as we look at the word in Christ's name. Amen. Warnings and promises, warnings and promises. I've been thinking about warnings this week, and so you can Google up uh, different warnings, and uh, you can type in funny warning signs, and they're everywhere. Actually, uh, there are warnings given to us when we drive. Here's one of them. Uh, You may have seen this before. Uh, I love that. Good luck, it says on there uh, when you look at that. Here's another warning that was painted on the ground. I don't know where that guy went to school, but I've got a good idea. Uh, there are warnings that uh, when you shop, there are warning signs that are given to you. This goes on this, uh, the warning label says, warning, wearing this garment does not enable you to fly. I'm sure there's some poor kids that are really disappointed when they pick this up. Here's another warning in a store, unattended children will be given an espresso and a free puppy. It's a good saying. Then there are warning signs at churches. These are church warning signs. Do not criticize your wife's judgment. Look who she married. And here's another church warning sign. We love hurting people. (laughs) Figure that one out. Read it how you want. And uh, I'm sure St. Martha's Episcopal Church, wherever it is, is a good little church. But uh, my favorite one, and I've used it before, says this, church parking only, violators will be baptized. Warnings are everywhere in the scriptures, and the parables we're going to look at this morning contain both warnings and promises, warnings and promises. And to be honest with you, there's a section here that's really hard to understand. I, I mean, when we come to verses uh, 24 and 25, we have to say up front as we look at these, is it difficult? I know why Jesus had to explain these to his disciples. 
Because we have 2,000 years of church history. We hold his words in our hand, and sometimes we scratch our heads and say, now what does that mean? What exactly does that mean? The interesting section of God's word. You've got to realize that when Mark is writing, he's writing uh, in the 50s. So Christ has been gone for about 20 years. And so like the other gospel writers, he's compiling his gospel to make a point, and he's writing with a purpose. And when he writes these parables, it's interesting. If you go to Matthew and Luke and find the similar parables or similar sayings, you're going to find they're scattered through the books. And so Mark's trying to make a purpose. When Jesus spoke, he had a purpose in mind. And so we're going to look at those purposes together, promises and warnings, warnings and promises in these particular parables. Let me remind you that the purpose of parables was twofold. The purpose of parables was to reveal truth and to conceal truth, to reveal truth and to conceal truth. Jesus already stated earlier in this chapter, beginning in verse 11, he said, To you must be given the mystery of the kingdom, but those who are outside, everything is spoken to them in parables, so that while seeing, they may see and not perceive, while hearing, they may hear and not understand. Jesus said, they've had their opportunity. They have come to me. They've denied me as the Messiah. In fact, they've attributed my works to the work of Satan, and therefore I'm going to speak in parables so they will have the truth concealed from them. But I will reveal the truth to you. So the purpose of parables is twofold. If you weren't here with us last week, the message is on line about the purpose of parables. He's teaching in parables to further draw a line in the sand. He's saying to the audience, if your purpose is to attack and assault me, if your purpose is for meals only and for miracles only, I'm going to speak in ways that's going to conceal this truth from you. And so Jesus speaks in these parables. Actually, when we read in verse 33, with many such parables he was speaking, uh, there are more parables in Matthew 13 in the context of this and other places. Mark is the guy who is brief with his words, and so he only records a few of them to meet his purpose. So what does Mark mean? In the first parable, we see verses 21 and 22, actually 21 through 23. He said, a lamp is not brought in to put under a peck measure, is it, or put it under a bed? You don't light a lamp. This is what an oil lamp looked like in the day of Christ. Uh, Remember, a parable is taking something that's very familiar to the audience and using it to teach a spiritual truth. Almost every home, if not every home in the time of Christ, would have one of these in their home. They would place some oil in it, and they would light that with the the wick so that it would burn through the night. And the purpose of a lamp is to shed light and dispel darkness. I mean, any time you turn a light switch on, it's to shed light and dispel darkness. Dispel darkness and to shed light. So this is the type of lamp Jesus is talking about. This is what he's speaking of, something they would fully understand that they have. And he says, when you light a lamp, you don't put it under a basket. You don't hide it under a basket. In fact, what you do is you let it burn. You put it on a lamp stand, if you will. You put it in an elevated position so it can shed more light. Yesterday I picked up the Temple Daily Blues and decided I would read it. And so as I picked up the paper, I was up early and still dark outside. So you know what I did? I sat in my chair, I put the lamp down on the floor, and I, I turned it on so I couldn't see my paper. Really, who does that? I mean, nobody does that. I, I sat on the sofa and I turned the lamp on and I'm under the lamp so that I can read it. And Jesus says, you, you don't. You don't put a lamp on and put a basket on top of it and, and hide the light. Nobody does that. You don't put it under your bed after you've lit it, do you? Nobody does that. In fact, what you do is you make sure that that light shines brightly. You make sure that it dispels as much darkness as it could. So the question we have to ask when we come to this parable, it says a lamp is not brought in to put under a basket or under a bed, but you put it on the lampstand so it will reveal that which is hidden. 
So the question we have to ask ourselves, who's a lamp? What's the lamp he's talking about? And when you read this, what, what does it mean? I mean, you've got to interpret that somehow. A lamp is not brought to bed. What's the lamp? But what's the light he's speaking of? I mean, there's got to be some understanding of this parable. Well, some would say it's the nation of Israel. It's the nation of Israel. And that's very plausible. In fact, that may be the best interpretation of it. Because back in the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah, we read, I, the Lord, have called you, the nation of Israel, in righteousness. I'll take you. I'll take hold of your hand. I'll keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people. And a what? A light for the Gentiles, literally for the nations. And you will open the eyes of the blind, set captives free, release them from dungeons, those who sit in the darkness. So you are to be a light to dispel the darkness. A little later on in the book of Isaiah, it says, I will also make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So the nation of Israel was to be a light. It was to shine as an example of who the true God was. They were not to hide their light. They were to shed their light. They were not to put it under a basket. That's what baskets looked like in the day of Christ. But they were to make sure that their light was shining and that Jehovah God was reflected. That was their job. That was their privilege. That was their responsibility. But Israel had a problem. Instead of loving the other nations, they loathed the other nations. Instead of loving the lost, they really desired to stay apart from the lost. Rather than going to the nations and saying, here's the light of the good news of who the true God is, they preferred to keep it to themselves. They preferred that these other nations would experience God's wrath and not his mercy. They wanted these wicked people not to turn to God, but to burn in eternity apart from God. The prophet Jonah serves as a great example, a great, a great symbol of what we're talking about here. Now, Jonah's a historical story. I believe there was Jonah. I believe there was a fish. I believe those things exist. But it's also a great picture of what the nation of Israel is like in that day. You remember the story of Jonah? Jonah's tapped on the shoulder by God, and God says, I want you to go to the Ninevites. And so Jonah goes down to the ticket office. He plops his American Express down, and he says, I want a ticket for Tarshish. That's the other direction. It probably didn't happen exactly that way, but in our day and age, that's how it happens. So Jonah goes down, ticket off. He buys a ticket gone in the other direction. God says, I want you to go to Ninevites. Jonah shakes his head and said, no. So in chapter 1, he is the prodigal prophet. In chapter 2, he becomes what? Praying prophet. If you look at Jonah chapter 2, Jonah is thrown overboard by the sailors. Jonah said, the reason we're going through this storm is because I'm rebelling against my God. So he said, if you throw me overboard, everything will be okay. So Jonah's thrown overboard, and uh, he becomes the praying prophet because when he's cast overboard, all of a sudden he finds himself gone down, 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 and you find Jonah praying in in Jonah chapter 2 that God would rescue him, and he is rescued. This fish comes along, swallows Jonah, and uh, as I've said many times before, Jonah's in a bad predicament. He's inside the belly of a fish. Two exits, neither is attractive. (laughs) And here's Jonah praying like mad. Look at Jonah chapter 2, it's there. So the prodigal prophet becomes a praying prophet, and the praying prophet becomes, becomes the repentant prophet, really the preaching prophet. Jonah repents, the, he becomes a whale, or he becomes fish barf on the shore. People look at him. He bleeds to white. He goes into Nineveh. And people repent from the pauper in the street to the king in the palace. They repent. Now, if that happened, how would you respond? I mean, if all of a sudden you went with the good news of who God really was, and everybody, you go to your place of work and say, I've got a message for you, and, and, and people begin to follow after the living God, what would you do? 
If you went to your neighborhood and said, we're going to have a Bible study and we're going to teach you about the good news and everybody responded, what would you do? You know what Jonah did? When everybody repented in in, in Nineveh, it says in Jonah chapter 4, verse 1, but it greatly displeased Jonah and he became angry. The Hebrew word for angry there literally is red in the face. Jonah's tick. He's a prophet with an attitude. Prophet with an attitude. Why is he so ticked? Because everybody has repented. Jonah was like the rest of Israel. They could care that the Ninevites were wicked people. They were evil people. They wanted them to spend their eternity separated from God, not with God. And how do I know all that? Because in the next verse, Jonah says this. He prayed to the Lord and said, please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God, a compassionate God. You are slow to anger. You are abundant in mercy, loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. God, I didn't want to go to these wicked people because I knew how loving you are, how gracious you are, how compassionate were you were. God, I knew that you would have mercy on them. So, God, I'm mad. In fact, Jonah 4.3 says, Jonah says to God, just take my life. Jonah says, I'm so mad, just kill me right now. And why is he mad? Because the Ninevites have turned to God. Because they've turned to trusting him. And he's mad. That was the nation of Israel. They had placed a basket on top of their light. Because they didn't want these wicked people of the other nations. They didn't want them to be freed from the prisons, to have the dungeons to let them out. And they didn't want the light to be shed upon them. Now, I'm glad we don't have that same situation today, aren't you? I'm glad you and I don't have any Ninevites. I'm glad you and I don't have people we look at and say, God, those people deserve judgment. Now, I want to remind you, the title of Jesus, or Jesus was known as a friend of whom? Sinners. Jesus loved the lost. Jesus loved the least. Jesus loved the lowly. And Jesus would get mad, but when he got mad, who did he get mad at? When he goes in the temple and turns over the tables, when he says, Woe to you, you scribes and Pharisees, what Jesus hated was the religious judgmental people of his day. And so Jesus says, You love the lost. You love the lost. You don't loathe them. You don't hide the lamp under a bushel. You go to lost people and you love them. Instead, we tend to be like the Israelites. The lost people, we look at them and say, hmm, they deserve it. That criminal, why would you go have a prison ministry? They're getting what they deserve. That homosexual, (laughs) you think I want to be in heaven with them? I'm not going to go love them. That Democrat, that Republican, I'm not saying that a Democrat or Republican can't know Jesus. They can. Both can. Some of you don't believe that's true, but it is. If they're lost, do you love them or do you loathe them? Which is it? See, which is it? Sometimes I'm afraid the evangelical church, we in it, are no different about hiding our light under the lamp like the Israelites were. Who do you loathe rather than love? Lost people. That Hillary Clinton? Those Aggies, those Longhorns? I've got it from a good source. Don't worry about it. We're all going to be tigers in heaven, so you're safe. (laughs) Israel hid the light that was to be revealed. What about you?
What about you? Remember when you were kids, you sang this little song? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, you got lights out there? Hold them up for me. Here you go. There you go. You can do it, even if you're 50. You can do it. Go ahead. You got a light? Hold your light up. And then what's the next thing? You got a light? Come on. You saw this thing. You're going to scream at a football game, but not hold your light up in here. Shame on you. Hold your light up. There you go. You got a light. Hold it up. Hide it under a... Where's that come from? Right here. Right here. Don't hide. Don't let Satan... You don't say blow it. You go, if you're from New Orleans, I'm going to do what? I'm going to let it shine. That's the calling in this verse. Don't, the warning is, don't hide the light. Jesus is the light. We know that. We see it in the Gospel of John. The light shines in the darkness, and darkness is not comprehended, does not overcome it. It's referring to Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, the Word was with God. So is the lamp, the light, Jesus, or Israel, uh, probably referring to both. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but we will have the light of the world. The point of the parable is clear. Don't hide the light. And, and, you know, lighthouses are interesting. They're beautiful. We took a vacation several years ago. We are at a meeting up in uh, Vermont, and then we drove up through, uh, took a ferry to Prince Edward Islands, Nova Scotia, and we were on a mission to find lighthouses. They're beautiful. I mean, they're absolutely beautiful things. But if all the lighthouse is is an ornament to look at or a piece of architecture to look at, it doesn't serve its purpose. What's the purpose of a lighthouse? purpose of a lighthouse is to dispel the darkness, to shed light so people, so ships can be brought to safety. That's us. We are lighthouses. We can dispel the darkness, not in our own power and might, but through the might of Jesus. Don't be like the nation of Israel who hid what they were doing. The second parable, I'm going to tell you verses 24 and 25 there, they're difficult to understand in this context. They're difficult to understand. I mean, I'm going to tell you, there are people that teach and preach the word of God, and they've got it all figured out. They understand everything. I'm going to tell you I don't. Sometimes I'm like Ned and a second grade reader. I mean, I go back, and I've read this a thousand times. I read eight commentaries on the Gospel of Mark every week. Every week I'm reading eight commentaries. I get six different opinions as to what these two verses mean. Okay, so I, I'm going to take one of them, and what I'm saying is don't quit growing. You can pick whichever one you want. You've got to come borrow my commentaries to do it, I guess. And, and he was saying to them, take care what you listen to. By your standard of measure, be measured against you, and more shall be given you besides. For whoever has to him, more shall be given, and whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from them. So there are several ways to look at this. Here's what I'm looking at. First of all, it says take care what you listen, or to, to what you listen to. He's saying you've you got to listen to the parable. He's already talked about it, hearing and understanding. So he says you've got to understand what I'm saying to you. The Greek word for listen there is akuo, to listen under, listen with the intent of obeying. When our kids were home, they lived upstairs in the bedroom. And, and so I would tell Daniel, I'd say, Daniel, your shoes are on the stairs. Well, Daniel knew what that meant. It, it didn't just mean, I wasn't just giving them information. I mean, if they were on the stairs, it meant, Daniel, your shoes are on the stairs. When you go upstairs, take them upstairs with you. Now, a lot of times he didn't. He is our absent-minded professor. Daniel forgets things. In fact, the last time he lost so many coats, the last time we wrote his name on this coat, you know when it was? His fourth year of medical school. You know, he showed up one time at Pine Cove, a camp we're at. We're speaking for Labor Day. He came in late. We're all there. My daughter, son-in-law, grandkids, Bev and I, we go out to help bring his stuff up. He pops a trunk in his car, and it's empty. Nothing. 
Not a thing in there. Daniel, what happened to your, your uh, overnight thing or your, your uh, gym bag and stuff? Left it on the porch of my apartment. <laughs> to listen means to listen with the idea of obeying, of doing something. Doing something. And that's what Jesus is saying. You've got to do something. You've got, and the other thing that stands out to me here, more shall be given, as said in verse 24, more shall be given, said in verse 25. Who is it that's given this? What is given greater understanding, I think? It's to listen, to take in. Why is more given? Listening with a desire to obey. The Jewish leaders were listening with no desire to obey. They didn't understand the word of God. And so I think what this parable is saying is keep growing. Don't quit growing. When growth stops, your understanding stops. Or when you quit understanding, quit hearing your growth stops there are other ways to take it let's talk about spiritual growth I, i'm just going to encourage you to grow spiritually no one should remain a spiritual baby forever but many do many do i mean you know it, it's like you know it, it, continual babyhood is deplorable really but many of us remain baby christians now, if you're a new believer, young believer, that's okay. But if you've been knowing Christ, if you've known Christ for decades, and you're still walking around carrying a pacifier, still have a bottle in your hand, the author of Hebrews said, by now you should be past that in Hebrews chapter 5. You know, your first child comes home, they're two days old, they're home from the hospital, they do their first dirty job, and Dad rushes in to change it and says, Daddy's sweet little girl has made doo-doo for him, and we're all excited. And a one-year-old, Dad smells a diaper, and he hollers, Sweetheart, it's your turn. I did the last one. If that baby's still doing that at two years old, the sounds and smells of this nuclear explosion peels the paint off the wall, Daddy comes to tears and says, Won't this kid ever be potty trained? If they do it at three years old, you give them up for it. Oh, you don't do that, but. <laughs> I mean, the point is, you don't want to be a baby your whole life, do you? But there are many people who have known Christ for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, still wearing diapers. You're growing. See, to greater understanding comes more and more. You read through the Word of God on a regular basis, and you understand more. You see more. You learn more goes on, there's a promise. The promise is this, sow the seed, God will bring about the growth. Sow the seed, God will bring about the growth. He said in verse 26, the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed on the soil. He goes to bed at night and he gets up and the seed grows up and it grows up by itself and he doesn't understand what's happening here. The soil produces crop by itself, first the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle. He's saying, you know what? The kingdom of God is going to grow. He says it's like the kingdom of God, verse 24. It's going to grow, but God's going to bring about the growth. That's what Paul meant when he says in verse 1 uh, Corinthians 3, 6, and 7. Paul understood this. I planted Apollos water, but God brought about the growth. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes these things grow. What's he saying there? He's saying we should not be saying, look who I led to the Lord. Look at the ministry I've grown. Look at what I've done. Look, look at my small group. Look at my disciples. Look at my class. See, all we are are planters and waterers. And who brings about the growth? God. You know, in this journey that God has me on, I became very introspective, which is not my nature. I, I, I'm the guy that just takes life as it comes and love to have fun and 
be with people, and, but I became highly introspective early on. And one of the things that God revealed to me is, Gary, you've got an issue with pride. You've got an issue with pride. And it really came out in two ways. The Sunday before I was diagnosed with ocular melanoma, I stood in this pulpit, and I made a statement. I said, you know, I'll be here 32 years. This was back in the last week in March. I'll be here 32 years this August, referring to the month that just passed. I've never missed a single Sunday due to sickness. And I wish I could look you in the eyes right now and say, that was said to bring God great glory because of the health he's given me. But I tell you, I was on my knees with a dear friend of mine on that day. I can look back and tell you that was a prideful statement. That was not said in humility. And I'm going to tell you, my heart's changed since then. The other thing that God brought to my attention, Gary, you know, you've got an issue of pride when it comes to success at TBC. And I, I, I feel like I'm humble most of the time, but there are times, man, my fingerprint is all over stuff, and God touched my heart in deep places. And I realize, you know what? Everything that's ever happened is because of him. Not because of you, not because of me, not because of anyone else. And I, don't mishear me. I'm not saying because of my pride, God struck me with cancer. I'm not saying that. But my pride was revealed through that cancer. And I pray you don't have to get on your knees one day because of that to sort out whatever it is that's in your life. But that you'll come before the living God and say, just teach me. I want to be like you every day in every way. And so we look at this and it says, you know, God can use what he wants. Remember what Jesus said? Hey, if you're not going to do it, the stones will shout out. People ask me about the success of TBC. You know, I tell them, hey, God spoke through Balaam's ass. He can speak through me. He can speak through you. <laughs> he can use anybody, anytime. He can accomplish that. So make sure he receives the glory. Pride comes before what? Fall. Like what one author said, in order to keep a true perspective on one's importance, everyone should have a dog that worships him and a cat that ignores him. <laughs> They're right. Finally, finally what we see is that uh, from small beginnings comes enormous growth. Jesus said, uh, so what shall we picture the kingdom of God or by what parable shall we present it? And he says, it's like a mustard seed, the smallest of all seeds. Jesus is using a parable. It's a proverb. The mustard seed is not the smallest of all seeds. So there are those that look at the Bible and say, aha, look at your Jesus. He speaks that which isn't even true. He makes mistakes. Look at your Bible. It's got a mistake. The, the mustard seed isn't the smallest of all seeds. The mustard seed is small. I mean, this is what a mustard seed looks like. It's one of the tiniest seeds there is. But there were smaller seeds. Well, Jesus just said, what parable should we use? In his day and age, it was a proverb. The mustard seed is the smallest seed. When he said that, everybody in that day and age would understand. He wasn't given a scientific fact. He was saying, here's what I want you to know, that the, the kingdom of God is like the mustard seed. And they would know what they meant, that which was the tiniest, that which is the smallest in their mind. And so what he's saying is that mustard seed will bring about great growth. That's what a mustard plant, a tree, looks like. It comes from that tiny seed. If you go to the ancient Near East, you'll see these types of bushes, these types of trees. From that tiny seed, the mustard plants come, come up. It comes up in glorious yellow, and we get our mu yellow mustard from it. And it's just a, it's a beautiful thing to behold. And Jesus' point is, from small beginnings will come enormous growth. He's saying the kingdom will have small beginnings. I'm the one that's going to bring about the growth. That's the previous parable. It's a promise given to them. It's not dependent upon you. And secondly, it, secondly the kingdom's going to start small from uh, small beginnings, but it's going to have enormous growth. 
It's going to be enormous growth. There are 6 billion people on our planet. Has the kingdom grown? You know it has. Last week I shared with you what's happening in China. When we left China in the 1950s, there were about 2 to 3 million known, 2 to 5, 3 to 5 million known believers. Now we estimate there are 100 million known believers, confessing believers of Jesus in China. That's amazing. The mustard seed has grown. The mustard seed is growing. This is where it needs to grow. This is called the 1040 window, 1040 latitude and longitude, and it's called the 1040 window because the bulk of unreached people groups in our world live within that box. The majority of people have not heard the gospel live there. Now, the good news is the Jesus film produced by Campus Crusade for Christ has been, it's been shown to over 4 billion people on our planet. 4 billion out of 6 billion, two-thirds of the people on our planet have seen the Jesus film. But the largest group of unreached people lie in that particular box right there. Many of them are atheists, animists. The majority are Muslim, Hindu, and Buddhist, and they do not know the name of Jesus. What can we do? First thing you can do is pray. You can pray. A jot down Operation World. You can go to the website this week. Just look at the slides that are there. You can look at it there. Operation World is a book that teaches you about the nations. Every day is a different nation to pray for. When our kids were little, we had Operation World on the breakfast table. We'd pull out a globe. We'd go to the page where the nation we're praying for that day, give statistics on that nation and prayer requests for that nation. And we'd pull out the globe, and our kids could find that nation on the globe. You can do it now in your own home. And then we would read what we're to pray for, and then we'd pray for those nations. That's how you develop. Some of you say, how do we develop a heart for the nations among our kids and our grandkids? This is how you do it. You pray for the nations. You pray for them. How do you develop a heart? You begin to pray. You know, all of a sudden you read something in the news. I read in the news. I use Operation World on occasion. I don't use it regularly like I did then. But now I know where that nation is. I know something about that nation. And you can pray and you have an interest in it. First thing you can do is pray. Second thing you can do is give. You can give. You can give generously. You can give to missionaries. You can give to mission efforts. You can... You can give to when we sponsor pastors, when we sponsor kids going to camp, when we send short-team missions, long-team, long-term folks. You can give. Thirdly, you can get educated. This coming weekend, it just so happens this weekend, we have a missions conference here at TBC. It's Friday night and Saturday. You can come to all of it or part of it. You can come Friday night. That's great. You don't have to come to the whole thing. If you can come Friday and Saturday, it finishes at noon. You will learn some things about the world. It's a great opportunity. I would challenge every young person especially. Every young person especially be there. But the oldest guy here, we can learn a lot about our world and what God is doing in our world. You can, you can pray. You can give. You can get educated. And you can go. You can go across the street. You can go next door. You can go around the world. Here's the promise from Jesus. Be encouraged because the insignificant will become the incomprehensible. Because of God's faithfulness. Because of God's faithfulness. This mustard seed has grown. This mustard seed is growing and we don't bring it about. He brings it about. In our day and age, if a video is posted online and it gets hundreds of thousands or millions of views, it's called what? That video has gone what? Viral. We all know that word. This is about the gospel going viral. This is about us taking the gospel next door and next door and next door and next door into the next state and to the next nation and to the next continent and literally around the world. And God says, because I am a faithful God, because I am faithful, this will be accomplished. The question is, what are you doing about it? What's your role in the viral spread of the gospel? Worship team, would you guys come up? This is about God's faithfulness. What's your role in the gospel?
I mean, Jesus is saying, this is going to happen because our God is faithful. He's going to bring about the growth, not you. And you don't become prideful over it. I mean, when's the last time you've done something as simple as inviting a friend to join you at church on a Sunday where they can hear the truth of the gospel? Fall festival coming up. You've got kids? Bring your neighbors with you. Just don't show up yourself. If you're coming for the candy, email me. I'll buy you candy. Really. I mean, if that's what you're coming for, do that. Why don't you use it as an opportunity that's missional? Why do we do this stuff? Just so you can come and have a good time? I mean, really, we, we can use it as an opportunity. Use an opportunity. Who do, you, who do you invite with you to worship? When's the last time you turned to a coworker, a neighbor, in the midst of their pain and their agony and said, let me just pray for you? That's being missional. That's the spread of the gospel. You know, the reality of it, the good news is, it's not dependent on us. It's dependent on the faithfulness of our God. These guys are going to sing about God's faithfulness. As I sing about the faithfulness of God, my prayer is this. If you don't know the Savior, you'll bow right where you are and make sure He is your Savior. If you do know the Savior, would you ask Him, would you ask Him that your light will never be hidden? It will always shine. And you'll be faithful to Him. Father, we're grateful. Grateful for your faithfulness. Great is your faithfulness, O oh God. Your mercies are new every morning. We don't want to be like the nation of Israel, like Jonah, hiding our light under a bushel basket. We don't want to hide it under a bed. We want to be faithful. We want to water. We want to associate. We want to water. But we recognize you bring about the harvest. We want to be prideful over our success. We want you to receive glory. And God, it excites our hearts as it should have excited the disciples when you said this, this mustard seed is going to become a great tree, a great plant, because it's going to spread. Would you do business with God as you listen to the words of this song? I'll be in the back. If you'd like to pray about anything, it's been a while since we've prayed for you. Come back here and join me. We'll pray over anything you'd like to pray for this morning.
under God you reign forever and your love will endure faithful and true is the name of the Lord you are faithful God Yeah. 